Hey everyone, welcome to episode 143 of the MTG Grandcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. I'm Chris Castor-Eppel, uh, here as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins. What's up Chris? Uh, it's been kind of a rough one. It's, yeah, I, uh, I feel that. For those of you who don't pay close attention to Magic Twitter, uh, we're not watching our tournament this past weekend, um, I definitely kind of put my foot in it. I... I, I told a story while we were doing coverage that was pretty careless and pretty thoughtless and definitely hurtful towards people with disabilities. And I I didn't interpret it in that way. But, you know, looking back, you know, I, I have a lot of things to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to kind of kick off this podcast with talking about that a little bit, talking about some of the stuff that I've learned, um, definitely lead with an apology to anybody who was hurt by my words um this is a really kind of odd situation for me personally like you know i so i i wouldn't have thought that this is something that i would do it's not the kind of mistake that i would have expected you to make right based on my perspective of you i mean you're generally you're honestly one of the most forward-facing you know careful or caring people that I know and you're always very considerate of the way that you come across and you do care a lot about other people and you want to make sure that everybody else is feeling comfortable and there's always a good environment. So it's not the kind of mistake that I would have expected you to make either. But, you know, I think it just kind of demonstrates that we do all make mistakes and we're here to acknowledge them. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in, in the the easy response to it is like, hey, you know, this isn't me. I'm a good person. But there's kind of like no, not really such thing as a good person or a bad person. Like there's good acts and there's bad acts and mm-hmm. there's actions that help people and there's actions that can hurt people. And you want to, you know, ideally you are 100% good acts and 100% actions that don't hurt people. And, you know, I'm really disappointed in myself for not recognizing the the hurt that the, my words could have caused, you know, I, I, I picture myself as, and I try to be a very socially aware, very conscious person. I have worked for a long time to recognize the prejudices that I do have, the, the biases that, you know, kind of get baked in, uh, and, and sort of take those, those out. And I guess ableism, is probably just like a blind spot of mine and one that I, I need to specifically work on mm-hmm. and um, have to do do better in the future. Um, and I, I really wanted to talk about it for a little while on the podcast because all of y'all have stuck with us for a long time now. And I, I feel like I do owe the people who are our fans, like, you know, who are our people, an apology. And, and I, I'm really sorry for letting you down. And, I, you know, I've spent the last couple of days just kind of sitting in my room. You know, I haven't been coming out and hanging out with people very much because this has been a, a really rough time for me. Uh, it's just hard when you recognize something in yourself that you don't like in there. And it's like very important to me that I am welcoming towards people and that I don't cause harm to people. You know, one of the things that I'm afraid of is... When those words get out and then that's the thing that people see from me. Um, and I'm not particularly concerned with like, oh, no, like people think I'm a bad person. But the the fact that maybe the one thing that I contribute to somebody's life is a thoughtless comment that is hurtful to them. And then they don't hear from me otherwise. Mm-hmm. Then that means that like the net sum of any good things that I do, like, didn't reach out and affect that person. And so then, like, I'm a net negative effect on that person's life. And that is really troubling to me. <laughs> and I don't want to ever be in that position or put anybody into that position again. So I've been doing a lot of research and I've been doing a lot of thinking and recognizing that, like, definitely ableism has been a blind spot of mine in the past. And... You know, like even when I went onto Twitter and explained and and apologized, uh, I missed a thing, which is that I didn't realize that saying handicapped person is, is not acceptable. 
uh, I, I did research into the preferred language for that sort of thing, into, you know, people first language and the the nomenclature that I should have used was person with a disability. And so, you know, that's one thing that I've learned. That's another thing that I've recognized. You know, it's easy to say, okay, this was a mistake, but the the hard part is figuring out, like, why didn't this, like, trigger the alarm bells in my head to say, like, no, this isn't appropriate, this isn't kind, this isn't thoughtful. Maybe I just have those alarms set up better for misogyny and for racism and for homophobia, and I just didn't have them set up for this. Mm-hmm. And so that's that that's the work that I have to do going forward from here. I think that, you know, there there are a lot of ways that we can all grow, even in the areas that we, you know, might at some point feel comfortable in. And I think that it's just going to be a continual journey for all of us to make sure that we are being proactive in recognizing when we were, uh, when we didn't understand something and make sure that you do take the steps to learn about it, educate yourself and and do better in the future. Yep. Um, you know, one thing I know for me, I took some sign language classes mm. at a community college and through that learned a lot about the deaf community. I was really blown away about how much there was that I didn't know about, about just like the way that the community is, you know, generally mistreated by a lot of people in our sure. society just because they don't understand like the, you know, some of the things that they do that don't come across well. So I really liked, like my favorite thing that I got out of those classes was not really learning a little bit of sign language, but learning more about the community Mm -hmm. and learning about how, you know, when I do interact with deaf people, I can be um, more considerate about what they're doing. So I think that as long as we're all, you know, have the attitude of, I want to learn more. I want to see if I can you know educate myself about all these things and not make these mistakes in the future. I think that it would be a lot better if, if more people adopted that kind of attitude. Yeah. I mean, I hope you get like, that's, that's really all I can do right now is try to have the right attitude and try to treat this as a learning experience. And certainly my intention is never to hurt anybody, but intention counts for so little when, mm-hmm. if somebody actually does get hurt, that that isn't the important thing. The important thing is that I recognize what I did wrong and I recognize my, you know, mis- lack of understanding and I, I work as hard as I can to correct that and not allow that to happen again because I, I just don't, I, I can't be putting bad stuff out into the world that that hurts other people. That's That's not who I want to be. And in a lot of ways, it is a little hard to see it now and come to terms with it now. But like, I am grateful for getting corrected on this mm-hmm. because that means that I do get to become a person who doesn't make this mistake in the future. And and so that's really good. And and so that like ends up being a huge positive. Uh, it, it can be a little hard in the moment to really truly appreciate that because, you know, I've, I've felt really lousy for the past couple of days and, and, you know, really guilty and just, I mean, honestly, like embarrassed because I, I think of myself as a smart guy. I think of myself as a really conscious guy and to not recognize the hurtfulness of my words immediately is it like it's embarrassing that I wasn't able to do that. That's a skill that I should have and that's an ability that I've, I've tried to develop. So it is a little embarrassing to have screwed that up. But, uh, you know, I want to be perfect and I'm not and I, I, I can try just try to make myself be better as much as I can. And so, but just to, to wrap it up, like I really, I I truly am sorry to anybody who was hurt by my words or to anybody who just felt let down. You know, I I know a lot of people do listen to us and whether they feel like they look up to us or they just like listening to us. And, uh, you know, if you, if you heard that and were just disappointed that somebody that you like would say these things, I'm, I'm really sorry for, for doing that to you. So I'll, I'll try to do better. I'll try really hard. I've, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of work and a lot of soul searching over the past couple of days. So, All right. Well, I think that's, you know, that's a good piece on it then. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. But I'll, I'll certainly be, be thinking about it and working on it more as, as time goes on. Um, you want to talk about the tournament? Let's, let's talk about magic. Yeah. So we casted the Pioneer Tournament this weekend. Yes. 
this was the second tournament in the season of the league, and uh, we had a pretty interesting, like, not totally expected metagame play out. Some things that maybe we could have predicted, but we had some really cool decks in top eight. Yes. We had some really cool decks show up, and we have a lot of information about win percentages and matchups and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely would like to wade through that. Yeah. So what were your just like overall impressions of the Pioneer format as it existed this past weekend? So, the, well, the big one yeah. that we have to talk about is Inverter of Truths. Mm-hmm. I knew that that deck was better than people thought it was because I think that a lot of people were in the mode of trying out new things. Everybody believed that Companions was the end-all be-all of all these other formats. Yeah. And, you know, even in Inverter, that might still be true. But it was definitely a deck that had been put on the back burner for a lot of people. So it was surprising to me when I first saw our metagame breakdown to have Inverter be so far and away the most popular archetype. Right. So that was, uh, I didn't expect that. I figured that Inverter would probably do well at this tournament, but for so many people to have figured that out before the event kind of took me off guard. Well, we have a pretty spiky event here. That's true. You know, a lot yeah, of very strong exciting. players. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but people want to win these things. Mm-hmm. And so, like, certainly in some of the Magic Online results and stuff, mm-hmm. Inverter has not been as represented as maybe it should be. Right. And that may be that result of like, hey, we've got new toys to play with. Like, let's put down this this old deck and start doing this Luris stuff and, and whatever. Um, but then, you know, when it came time for our tournament, like mm-hmm. Inverter showed up and from yeah. the outset, twice as popular as the next most represented deck. Yeah. So 40 Inverter decks in our tournament. Uh, what was our total count at the end? Um, uh, it was like 170 something. Okay. I'm not sure exactly how many. Sure. But it was uh, over 20% yeah. of the metagame. Right. Uh, yeah, 40 inverted decks, and then the next most popular archetype was Boros Burn mm-hmm. in 18 yeah. represented decks. So yeah, pretty cool to see that. And that's honestly kind of the first time that I felt like, it's like, okay, our tournament is what people are preparing for. This is what people are trying in. Yeah. And that, you know, that feels good because, it you know, it I always view like the Star City Games tournaments and the PTs and the GPs as those things. So it's kind of cool to be a part of that, of like, you know, all right, we're we're hosting something that people are becoming invested in. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. It feels good. Um, and, and you know, we do have a pretty relatively focused metagame from the outset here. You know, our top five decks mm-hmm. are Demir Inverter, Boros Burn, Lotus Breach, White Splash Blue Devotion, yeah. Orzov Auras, and then it drops off completely after that. Mm-hmm. You know, Orzov Auras at a little bit over 8% of the metagame, and then fewer than half that number right. is the sixth most represented deck in mono red aggro. Right. So, you know, there are five decks that people were like taking seriously mm-hmm. and thinking like these are the good decks, and the vast majority of the tournament like was focusing on those. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I mean, you know, that's pretty cool. And I think that is definitely indicative of a developed metagame mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, there the consensus is that this is what you want to be doing right now. Yeah. So Yeah, and just to go over like how well each of them kind of did. Yes. Uh, so Inverter continues to be very good. 53 to 54% overall win rate in our tournament. Mm-hmm. However, we did break out the two versions of this deck. Yes. So, right. Um, for those unaware, the Inverter players were split on whether or not they wanted to add your Orion to the, uh, to the deck. Mm-hmm. Some people favored the consistency of 60 cards. Uh, other people preferred the power of adding the companion to their deck. Right. So we got some data on how they each performed collectively against each other. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Uh, and, and those Yorion lists are, you know, you add in some comes into play stuff. You run more main deck Narsets, you run Trial of Ambition, you run Omen of the Sea, and then you have a lot of blink targets for Yorion right. that are pretty high value. Yeah. The um, Trial of Ambitions were very impressive every time I saw them. And I think they're one of the key things one of the key metagame developments that really made the really punished orzov auras yeah because they rely on <laughs> their creatures protecting their creatures yeah, yeah yeah for sure um but at the end of the day we were kind of given updates throughout the tournament of how inverter 75 was doing versus inverter 95 mm-hmm. after just a couple of rounds it looked like inverter 75 was was well ahead mm-hmm. but then as the tournament went on Inverter 95 caught up and eventually passed it. So at the end of the tournament, Inverter 95 ended up with 100 and 
24 matches played. 70 of those were wins, 54 of them losses. So that's overall about a 56.5% win rate. Mm-hmm. Regular old inverter with no companion ended up at a 49% win rate. Exactly where Demir inverter... Oh yeah, 49.49%. <laughs> that's if, you know, there couldn't be a more meme percentage for this one at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's true, regular inverters support 49% deck, I guess. But, you know, now you can add your companion to the deck and get, <laughs> get a little boost. <laughs> Apparently, it, it does in a way feel like you can kind of add Yorion to any mid-rangey sort of deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, the slots that you add, like you add some lands, and then as long as all of the spells that you add are blink targets, right? then it works. Yeah. And it's becoming to make a lot more sense to me why all of these uh, companions are hybrid colors. Mm-hmm. It's because I think it was intended for these companions to be able to be used in a variety of different decks. Right, and, right. you know, if Watsi was aware of how much of an impact these cards are going to be, it makes sense that, like, okay, we want to have a variety of Urion decks, a variety of Lurus decks, and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a cool design that I'm appreciating more and more. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some thought put into that, and I think just ultimately like an underestimation of the exact extent of the impact of these cards and how important they become to the yeah. the metagames that they're in. So, you know, we started talking about the win rates of these decks. Oh, yeah. Um, Inverter, you know, between the two ended up at like, you know, 53-54% win rate. Yep. Uh, Boros Burn was the most winning deck in our tournament yes 58 win percentage and you know won the whole tournament it did it took it down uh piper powell definitely a deserving champion she played really well in the matches that we got to watch yep. and she was even able to beat probably her worst matchup in the finals yeah which was really fun to watch yeah definitely yeah uh abzan company which is one of the neat deck. Well, in our neat deck section, we'll we'll talk about yeah, abzan yeah, yeah. company right but it, i'm excited for our neat deck section yes there, there's a few things yep Lotus Breach did not perform particularly well, 41% win rates, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people just were prepared for it, saw a lot of Damping Spheres, saw just a lot of hate generally, and that's all it takes to beat this deck, so just have to guess if that's going to happen or not before you commit. Um, Devotion, 51 51 to 52% win rate, Um, fine deck matchup dependent mm-hmm. it's very grindy and does fine in grindy matchups it's a like one of the purest yorion decks yeah of them all uh, yeah. although it does also technically have a combo in it but it just never does that anymore <laughs> it's just mostly here to play that mid-range game yeah yeah and it it, it does feel like the it's like yeah that's that looks like a jundi win percentage to me here's <laughs> 50 50 you got some bad matchups you got some good matchups yep uh orzov auras did not do well 45 percent mm-hmm. win rate and i think Basically gets trounced by most of the Yorion decks of, of whatever stripe. Right. So not a good position to be in. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing we saw in Standard, too, is kind of the Yorion decks. Like, Yorion decks as a whole kind of match up pretty well against Luris decks as a whole. And mm-hmm. and so that is a, you know, kind of tug-of-war metagame thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also I think that uh, Orzov Oros was one of the archetypes that had uh, the biggest targets on its back mm-hmm. um, is that people were ready for um, for auras in, in this tournament. Yeah. Because it, it was definitely one of the boogeymen. You needed to be able to beat it. You needed to tune your deck specifically to do that. And it it looks like people did. Yeah. So I mean, Trial of Ambition into Blink Trial of Ambition, yeah. plus other removal spells that right. force you to... Yeah, that, that's just a lot. Yeah, and also shout out to everybody for being prepared for uh, Lotus Breach. Good job. Yes. We uh, we were able to defeat the Lotus Breach Menace in this <laughs> tournament, which is something I was personally hoping for. Yeah. So, um, cool. I mean, it, as long as the majority of weekends this happens, and then every once in a while it spikes. Sure. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm not always the anti-combo guy. But in this case, I don't, I don't like this one. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to be the anti combo guy. <laughs> it's a combo that you kind of can't interact with with normal cards. Mm-hmm. Like just counter spells doesn't really beat Lotus Breach. Mm-hmm. Like just thought seizes. Like it, cards that you can run normally don't really do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like maybe a version of Yorion Inverter is okay against it because you have not only you know thought seizes but now you have upgraded your counter magic to neutralizes 
and you have a lot of Narsets. And so if you can cover a Narset with a counterspell, then that's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, yeah, typically pretty good. But yeah, so, and, and you know, we really haven't talked that much about the Boros Burn deck, but that was the most successful mm-hmm. deck of the tournament. Just kind of mono-red, maybe splashing, maybe including uh, Boros Charm, mm-hmm. but the white is mostly just for Luris. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I was more impressed with that deck than I expected to be. Mm-hmm. I have played a little bit uh, with that deck like much earlier on in Pioneer. Mm-hmm. I haven't played it in this particular metagame. Yeah. Um, and it felt like when it was targeted, it felt very poor. But I think that the meta has shifted into a place where the target isn't necessarily on it but instead it's on the the auras deck Mm because if we remember a little bit about the history of like commandians are released what's happening in pioneer everybody's playing this burn deck Mm -hmm. so people targeted it but then quickly after that everybody started playing this auras deck um and i think that now we're in a situation where people are targeting this auras deck as their like thing that i want to make sure i want to beat and then burn was able to kind of recover a little bit because the ways that you target these two aggressive decks are very different. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about how good Trial of Ambition is against the Auras deck. Mm-hmm. It's really not very good against the Mono Red deck. Right. You're going to get yeah. a one-mana creature with it mm-hmm. every time. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I'll take that deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so it, it's it's cool to see that happening. But I think, and I think that, you know, definitely after all these statistics are available to everybody... The target still isn't likely to be on the burn deck as much as it's going to be on inverter, but inverter is historically very difficult to hate out. Yeah. So um, well, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. Well, one of the nice things is we do have a matchup matrix here. <gasps> are we, we going to be able to talk about the matchup matrix? We can. Yes. And, okay. and, you know, all of these are not large sample sizes. Yes. So they're not super representative. The ranges of what the actual. Uh, matchup percentages is, is are pretty large, but you know, Boros Burn versus Demir Inverter, mm-hmm. like this seems to be a fine way to beat it. Uh, yeah. t- you know, we only have twenty one matches in here, right? But over those twenty one matches, sixty two percent win rate for Boros Burn against Demir Inverter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when we watched games play out, it definitely looked to be in the Boros Burns, in yeah. the Boros Burn decks favor right the cards were cheaper and it ended the game quickly and often just could strand like cards in in the inverter deck's hand were not that good and it took me a little bit to figure out why that might be the case because i remember i have typically always been happy playing against these red aggressive decks as inverter Mm -hmm. but when i was playing more inverter i was playing against these more creature oriented decks they were playing like two drops and my fatal pushes were really impactful and really good. Right. But now this deck is more one drop oriented and burn oriented. Mm-hmm. And those are accesses that are much more difficult to compete on. Sure. Because it, it used to feel like, okay, if I can survive until turn four and then slam my inverter, my opponent's just going to be dead as a mono red player. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like I get to survive turn four by tapping out for a six drop mm-hmm. or for a six power, six, yeah, six power creature. Right. Now. Right. Well, and they can also just go wider. Like you play a blocker, but their yeah. Luris has already gotten a creature back, and yeah. then on this turn gets a haste creature back when you like when you play the blocker rather than a removal spell on their Luris. So yeah. they are pretty good at pushing through damage. Well, I mean, like you give a burn deck just an extra resource, <laughs> and then the games where that burn deck got you to three and didn't kill you, which was very frequently, right? Yeah. Then they're gonna they kill have you. it this time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pretty crazy. Yep. Any other, like, important or standout matchups that we should be talking about? So, like, amongst the main matchups, it looks like Inverter... Uh, it's beating most stuff. It's beating pretty much everything except for this Boris Burn deck. It's got 56% against Lotus Breach, 69% against uh, the Azorius Devotion deck, mm-hmm. 61% against Auras. Yeah, that can't... Hold on. Let me see how many... Just how big that... Yeah, and these sample yeah. sizes again are right. very small. So that's that's so, only thirteen matches against the devotion deck. Sure. And I, I do I, I think that matchup is probably in Inverter's favor, mm-hmm. but pretty cl- a lot closer to even than that that seventy percent number. Yeah, that's fair for sure. Yeah, seventy percent is is quite a lot. Yeah. So when we're stating these percentages, we should definitely be saying this is what happened in our tournament. This isn't necessarily 
how it's going to play out every time. But but I mean, these Yorion decks did move away from the ways that the regular mm-hmm. mono-white devotion decks yeah. had transformed the matchup with right. like lots of Gideons, lots of Gideons interventions. And that was a discussion point in our team meeting, mm-hmm. is that Edgar was talking about how he really likes Inverter. He specifically mentioned the mono-white matchup got a lot better because... They're A, not playing as many Gideons as they did before, and B, their deck is a lot more diluted. So they're going to find a lot less of the specific answers that they need. Right, right. For sure. Yeah, and and that's... they. I think a lot of that was just the decks kind of ignoring Inverter. Yeah, like they really just were not set up to win a game one of that matchup. Right. Uh, And, you know, when you're sideboarding into your 80-card deck, you're not necessarily set up to win games two and three either. Yeah, so... But yeah, yeah uh, overall, most of these decks were just not beating Inverter. So mm-hmm. yeah, Inverter seems to be, yeah. I, I mean, it was certainly the best call for this weekend. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a lot of people were savvy enough to make that call. Yep. So yep. definitely pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the meta evolves. I don't think that Pioneer is going to be a format where it becomes solved for too long. No, so, um, I, I think that people are going to have the opportunity to adapt to Inverter mm-hmm. to push its win percentage Maybe not sub-50, but to, like, a reasonable win percentage. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it was totally out of line even in this tournament where it was the best deck for this tournament. So. Yeah, right. Um, Another thing that uh, I got out of looking at the tournament statistics overall is that our top eight consisted of pretty much the same proportions of each deck mm-hmm. as our overall metagame. Right. You know, there were, like, you know, what was it, three inverter decks, yep. two burn decks, and then a smatter of the other stuff. So that's like essentially what was our overall metagame protection. And when stuff like that happens, that's typically a good sign that all of these decks are having close to 50% win rates. Mm-hmm. And because it, like if one deck that is like like the fourth mo- best, most represented archetype is dominant in the top eight, that's typically a sign that like, okay, that archetype was much, yeah. much better Massively than overperformed. Yeah, right. Um, but this is just like, yeah, everything seems to be pretty chill and the deck that people happened to play the most of was the one that was most represented in our top eight. Yeah, and it was probably like a little bit better than most of the decks in the tournament yeah. and, and, you know, that's fine. Some of the really cool decks that we got to see and yes. and these decks were also rewarded with top eight births. So that is kind of nice. Also to see. love to see that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we got Ryan Overturf on camera a couple of times and mm-hmm. he made our top eight with a very Ryan Overturf Grixis <laughs> deck. I'm going to call it Grixis napkin. Grixis. Yeah. It, it definitely is a sketch of a deck with like a couple of things worked out, but it's, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think that there is some work to be done on it, Sure, but there's work to be done on it because it's operating in a really compelling deck building space yeah and and like one that is worth exploring right. some more and one that i when i saw this deck i was like wow i'd never thought of this before mm-hmm. never seen this before but it makes a lot of sense yeah so the the concept of the deck was it's a lurus deck uh but instead of playing uh, like a lot of these other lurus decks are more like aggressive and trying to use it to get to squeeze out additional resources this is mainly a control deck mm-hmm. so this is just grixis with uh, you know, a bunch of interaction, removal spells, and stuff like that, and not a ton of permanents to get back, but the permanents that you are getting back are very powerful. So it's if, just Jason Croxa. Yeah, you're playing for Croxa, which is one of the main engines of the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to trade resources as much as possible. Croxa is pretty good in that scenario, um, and being able to rebuy Croxa a couple of times for two mana is pretty nice with Loris. And then there was also a one of was it? It's not the Scrabbing Claws. It's the Oh, um, yeah. Soul Guide Lantern? Yeah, and Soul Guide Lantern, right. Um, yeah, and like that being like the quote-unquote bobble effect of Luris just being able to cantrip every turn yeah. was really cool, and I liked that a lot. And but and then another thing I noticed out of watching this deck play out is that, so th- there are two Colgan's commands, mm-hmm. so the kind of the loop of play my Luris, get value out of it, you kill it, Colgan's command, get it back, mm-hmm. play it, get back a Jace, flip Jace, Cast Colgan's command after you like right. it just works really really well in and amongst itself. So yeah. I was really impressed with that in deck building. Yeah, it can grind for a long time. Yeah, the main like criticism that I have of the deck as a whole, and I'm not sure that it's solvable. Sure, is you know you're relying on Croxa as your kind of secondary thing. You know you can't just have th- this is Ryan acknowledging you can't just have like Luris and Jace and yeah. you, that that doesn't quite work. So he puts Croxa in there as well. And, you know, Croxa is okay. 
Yeah. But overall, it is a kind of medium card, and it's particularly incredibly bad against the aggro decks. It just kind of does nothing. Mm-hmm. And then having Croaksa in the deck kind of demands graveyard enablers. And so then a lot of Ryan's list is taken up by four Croaksas, four strategic plannings, and four discovery dispersal. Yeah. And that's a lot of two mana one for ones that don't affect the board. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in grindier matchups, it's kind of fine. Right. In aggressive matchups, <laughs> I, I think we saw, like, you know, in the top eight, we just kind of saw him get punished by that. Yeah. Yeah. Falling to the um, the uh, mono red player. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and it definitely, like, looking at the deck list laid out, like, having a bunch of cantrips at two mana, mm-hmm. it, it looks pretty awkward. But there's just nothing really else in those color combinations that cleanly, A, fit the plan of playing this grindy resource game. So, like, a lot of the cards that in those color combinations that dump cards in the graveyard do that at a card disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And, but we really can't afford to have card disadvantage in our in our grindy Grixis deck. For sure. So we have to kind of reach for these, like, two-mana cantrips that, you know, are, like, decently good card selection, but are just really hard to play on curve. Yeah. So I'm wondering if a different direction for this, like, Luris control deck concept might actually work out better. Mm-hmm. I think you want to maintain the Jace Friends Prodigies for sure, because that's that's kind of your, like, really remarkable engine is just keep getting back Jace, and Jace is really good in Pioneer. But, yeah. like, that's super clear. Yeah. And one other deck that kind of stood out to me, at least in concept in the tournament basic concept was that uh like so travis showed up with abundant growth luris and abundant growth is the one green mana enchantment that uh it's an aura chance a land gives it tap for mana of any color and you can sacrifice it to draw a card so like that's a really efficient little bauble and there's i think there's something there with like that bauble Mm -hmm. and jace's and maybe satyr wayfinders as well mm, okay. so that when you're doing that like cantripy thing right then you're also at least putting a chump blocker on the board sure the problem is like the colors don't really work out there you know like then you're like okay yeah then that fills my graveyard but then you probably don't want croaks anymore because that's too many colors yeah. because you've got like you want blue you've got green for Seder wayfinder like then you don't want black and red both yeah. So I don't know exactly like what color combination is going on here, but something grindy with a good Luris cantrip mm-hmm. and, you know, good controlling but cheap permanence to get out of the graveyard. Right. It, there's something cool there. Yeah. And it, it might be worth sacrificing the Jaces to go into other colors like green mm-hmm. to do the graveyard enabling. Because I do think that Kroxa is like one of the better finishers that you can have in a Luris deck. Mm-hmm. There's just nothing else for two mana that's going to put a big body in play right. that has to be answered or you're going to die. It, it simulates a much higher mana right. cost creature than you're yeah. otherwise allowed to play. So I think that it, it works really, really well with Luris. And this Grixis shell was definitely very cool, but I think that, you know, some other color, color combination might be might be better yeah. for that. The Jaces were really good though. So Yeah, I mean Jace is just one of the one of the better creatures in this format. Yeah. For sure. And I, I do you know, the thing that excites me about Ryan's deck really is Jace Luris. Yeah. So Okay, sure. But you know, who knows? Maybe maybe Croxaluris is better once you're enabling it with less tempo disadvantageous mm-hmm. spells. Yeah, and I mean that was the other thing is that like the spells that I like right now are the non-blue spells. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to, that's like one of the reasons why I'm willing to shift away from blue mm. is that, um, you know, I think that removal spells are m- like pretty good right now um, and less so the counter spells. Mm-hmm. Like I just saw a lot of games where Ryan just had some disdainful strokes that he sideboarded in and just was never able to convert them. Just yeah. And he like, and it cost him a lot because he wanted to tap out every turn mm-hmm. to do like other stuff, like cast his cantrips or whatever. But, um, so I don't, I don't really know what the solution is there, but, uh, right. I really loved the direction that this is going and hopefully people can pick this up and, uh, you know, help improve on it. Yeah. I, I saw Aspiring Spike playing like a Golgari 
sort of version of a grindy Luris deck with abundant growth and removal spells and grim flare mm. and um there I, I, so i think there's something there to this engine with Luris as like not just a, a bunch of creatures trying to kill your opponent but you know i want to interact a lot and then have Luris be allow me to be pretty threat light and gain me card advantage in my interactive deck mm. so other cool decks that yeah. we saw this tournament um, um, right, so there's Carolyn's uh, Jeskai Walker's deck. Yeah. It was really sweet. Definitely. With the, the main deck, uh, Hour of Devastation, Nicole Bolas, as just a gigantic, you know, main deck <laughs> finisher. Look, I mean, you know, if you're if you're going to have, uh, if you're going to go big with a deck, you got to have your Nicol Bolas in there. It's just as big as you can get. That's as big as you can get. It looks great. Yep. I have to read it every time. I have no idea what the abilities are. I just well, know it, it kills you really fast. Yeah. I mean, my experience with it in Standard was that if it ever got in play, I lost. Right. So it's probably pretty good. It's it's not bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. But it, so, okay. So this deck was very reminiscent of the Yorion fires wish deck that we had seen a little bit in standard mm-hmm. so like i'm picturing zan's yorion fires deck from the last tournament that, he, that we uh had was you know he was just pl- like really leaning on the wish package and playing fires and kind of utilizing all the synergies with that and and yorion yep so this is the same thing but now we get to use pioneer power level cards Right. Which stood out to be pretty impressive. Well, and and one of the really big upgrades is rather than playing like Omen of the Forge, mm-hmm. she gets to play Oath of Chandra. So just a blinkable yeah. three damage. Uh, yeah, a blinkable sorcery speed lightning strike. Yeah, a, a volcanic hammer, mm-hmm. and that's it. Looked really good. Uh, I mean, you know, it is a little redundant because she also has Deafening Clarions, so it's kind of doubling up on that. But that's fine in an eighty card deck. You you want a little more of that early game right. removal. Yeah, and you know, just reasonable upgrades to the Planeswalkers that you're allowed to play in a standard version of this deck gets to run what are effectively main deck hate cards for a lot of the format in Gideon of the Trials and Narset and stuff. And yeah. of course, Teferi. And and then Yorion is always ready to come down and blink and reset your Planeswalkers loyalty. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these Planeswalkers love having their loyalty reset. Yeah. Narset, Teferi. Yep. Um, you know, really cool. Yeah, definitely. Even an Oath of Teferi in the main deck of this deck because it kind of doubles up on functionality. <laughs> yeah. You can actually get an effect out of the blink right. because you have a bunch of blinkable permanents mm-hmm. and you can do the fires thing where you right. have it as your second spell and then you use your mana. Right. Yeah, it kind of effectively becomes a free spell. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a ton of mana, more than a free spell. Right. But um, typically it's the play pattern is you get to squeak it in there for free mm-hmm. and activate your planeswalkers again yeah and you don't want a ton of that in your deck i think one in an 80 card deck is is kind of pushing it anyways right but. yeah yeah for sure um but the fact that it gets to be free some amount of the time makes me not just kind of dismiss it as a win more card right i, I think it's an actively good card to draw when you have fires in play yeah and there's a limit there's a cap on the number of those you can have in your deck you can only have so many drawn from dreams and stuff yeah yeah uh and you know fey of wishes is pretty medium when you don't have fires in play but uh it is quite good when you do have fires. so right also combos pretty well with uh yorion um being yeah. able to blink the yorion right is always really good if you have just a ton of other stuff that you want to blink that's true you get to just keep blinking mm-hmm. you never have to like you just get to get in this endless blink cycle if right. if that's what you want to do yeah. It's like the, um, like with Charming Prince. Charming Prince yeah. kind of deal. But a little harder to interact with. Yes. Right. So not just a 2-2 body that you can get rid of. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this deck was super fun to watch and was really excited to see Carolyn make a deep run in this tournament. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the last cool deck that made top eight was mm-hmm. Abzan Rally. Yes. So kind of leading into this tournament, I knew about Stanley's version of this rally deck. And it was just essentially the same as his standard version of just mm-hmm. orzov rally but the shell of the rally deck was just like the you know you got to play more blood artist effects mm-hmm. in because you got what's the zulaport cutthroat. cutthroat and you're mainly just trying to like dump a bunch of cards in the graveyard and then rally and and kill them with the cartel aristocrat yeah the abzan version of the, this deck Splashing Seder Wayfinder. Splashing Seder Wayfinder is the only green card. I, I honestly, leading into this tournament, I did see this deck, mm-hmm. but I was skeptical about the mana working out. 
I just like he's like you're taking a lot more damage with the shocklands, and it doesn't seem great. And you're just you know sometimes going to have mana issues. But you know the fact that your like quote unquote double black spell in fiend artisan can still be cast with your mm-hmm. like green white lands, for example, is yeah. is uh, I think a big help. So I think the mana was better than I gave it credit for. Ross Marion ended up playing it, and also it made a deep run and made it in its way into the top eight of the tournament in the hands of Mason Gray. Mason Gray, yeah. Yeah, and I do also, while we're talking about the, the players who made top eight, I do also want to give a, a shout out to Sean Hunter, Baron yeah. of Bacon, who oh, is nice. kind of a longtime patron of ours and, yeah. and interacted with him quite a bit in our Discord and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, love to see him doing well. Definitely. So I think that we're going to try and actually, like, hopefully, he did well in our last t- tournament too, mm-hmm. and he's just kind of done well even before the season started. So I think... Like, ideally, he makes the Invitational, and I think we want to get him on for a guest spot, maybe. Ooh, I think that would okay. be pretty cool. Yeah, that would be fun. So, yeah. But yeah, this is a cool top eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, getting, like, Carolyn Cavanaugh also has played in all of our tournaments, I right. think. And, yeah. and she's done well in several of them, and to have her make top eight, super mm-hmm. cool. Um, Piper Powell has been on an absolute tear in Pioneer. Yes. Just, like, top eighting uh, uh, multiple, like, like I think in a row just like I, I think two challenges and a super pcq or something nice. like that okay I, I may have that wrong but i know that she has top aided a lot of pioneer stuff lately okay. so yeah yeah uh, really cool to see her convert that into a win here yeah you know and that's gonna put her up there in our leaderboard as well for the season so yeah. i'm hoping she comes back for our other tournaments i, I hope so too mm-hmm. yeah we had slightly different metagames show up in the challenges this mm-hmm. weekend yeah. from from what happened here like we didn't really see as much inverter in those tournaments, and we mm. we saw like Lotus Breach and Auras do quite well in those when they got like kind of kind of beat up tournament. in our tournament, yeah. yeah. And and that may be just like fewer people playing inverter, which is favored against both of those decks. Yeah, um, I would imagine that that's probably the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also had some decks show up in those tournaments that we just didn't see at all. And ours, uh, Jeskai Cycling being one of them that I saw. Is that broken into Pioneer too? That has... I know it's like ravaged standard. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it top aided this this Pioneer challenge. Uh, Zerda the Dawn Waker as a companion, Flourishing Fox. This is actually like a way more controlling sort of deck. Okay. Uh, it's not running like a you know the rescue Valiant Rescue or anything like that. Oh. Its payoffs are just Flourishing Fox. Uh, and Zenith Flare. Okay. And just kind of using Zenith Flare as like in the mid game, a powerful removal spell that buys you a lot of time. And then later on, just like domes them for 15. <laughs> it just kills them. Um, but yeah. you know, this is a cycling deck that has four Shark Typhoons main deck. So it's. You love to see that. It's way more controlling. Hieroglyphic Illumination, Supreme Verdicts, Neutralizes, and Sensors are two of its cyclers. Mm-hmm. So it's not trying to just cycle one mana things over and over and over again. Right. It's, it's playing a real game. Yeah. Um, but it just so happens that all of the cards have cycling, mm-hmm. which that, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and so then you can just have Flourishing Fox as a Tarmogoyf, which mm-hmm. kind of nobody else has access to. Yeah, and, yeah, and and if your Flourishing Fox, if your Tarmogoyf isn't going to be good, it's got cycling one. So um, yeah, I mean, love to see that. I love putting my uh, my like situational cards to have cycling. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I mean, this deck is pretty cool. It's got a lot of just good cards that happen to cycle in it and it has has, adorably if you haven't cycled enough we also have a desorius charm the original cycle yes yeah the original like controly blue white card that sort of has cycling but doesn't trigger any of your cycling payoffs yeah just cantrip or also removal spell it's i mean it's powerful card so yeah might as well it's just for two mana in those colors like that's about the best you can do so Mm -hmm. you kind of have to um, also have been seeing a lot of, and on Goldfish, it's called Boros Feather. But you but can't run Feather anymore. These are all Luris decks. It's been replaced. <laughs> yeah. And they're, I, like, you see a bunch of them in every tournament, and it's doing quite well. And this I've, is... I've played against this deck frequently on Pine, in okay. Pioneer, so it's around. Yeah. Um, it just, yeah, I guess it just didn't show up in our tournament. No, not even at all. Like, right. like I, I didn't see it once, uh, mm-hmm. but this is Red White Heroic, basically, uh, with Luris. Yep, I don't know. What do you what do you think about this deck? I mean, it's powerful. Um, it definitely benefits in the same way that the Auras deck benefits, mm-hmm. where you know Luris is just f- phenomenal with your game plan. It's, I think it's a little debatable whether or not you want to be on this deck or if you want to be 
on the auras deck mm. the benefit of playing this deck is that you get more access to cards like god's willing sure where like the other deck has like a few of those effects and but is mostly trying to protect its creatures with like alcyid which is all on board yeah. but having access to like if if players are really counting on their spot removal to take care of these decks then this it has a better time fighting through that well i mean the other deck has karametra's blessings which that's true. Is really bonkers in that deck. Yeah, that's fair. So, I, like, it seems kind of similar mm-hmm. in in that regard to me. Um, I guess Boros Charm is a way to protect your creatures as well, potentially. Yeah, I mean, this is just taking a little more of a burn approach, right? On it, you're just a little you you probably goldfish a little bit more quickly and can do more damage with less sort of mm-hmm. you know like in in the auras deck if you play turn two sram and then they kill it mm-hmm. and then you just don't have a way of drawing cards with your auras you can get messed up pretty easily yeah. and in this one like kind of all of your creatures are serving the same role of being creatures you can target with your pump spells yeah. and also one of the bigger benefits of playing this deck is access to reckless rage mm-hmm. and that card is, that card's is really very good. very powerful and pretty good in the creature mirrors yeah so. yeah definitely and that was always the big draw to Feather decks in general, mm-hmm. is just like yeah. Reckless Rage is a nutty removal yeah. spell. You don't have Feather Reckless Rage, which was kind of like the end of the creature matchups, mm-hmm. um, but you do have uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist Reckless Rage, which does a good uh, a mimic of that like endgame scenario where you are just like Reckless Raging over and over again. Yeah, so yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, Arcanist is a card that I always want to, like, try to play in the formats that it's not good in. Mm-hmm. It just is a, like, compellingly designed magic card that <laughs> when it works is really good. Yeah. So I, I get it. Yeah, I don't know. Any other thoughts about Pioneer? I mean, not really. I mean, we covered the popular decks. Mm-hmm. We covered the cool decks. I suspect that moving forward, we're going to be seeing Inverter. I It looks like it's not being played at large yet on Magic Online. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the results of the challenge. Yeah. So I think that after our tournaments becomes, you know, the, all the data from it becomes public, I think that people are going to start adopting Inverter on Magic Online. So I don't know if the next era for Magic Online is going to be Inverter is the most popular deck or if Inverter is going to get targeted right away. Sure. So I think that we it, it might take a little bit of time for it to get to the point where it's getting targeted. And right now it's it might just be really, really good to be playing Inverter. Yeah, I mean, um, based on these decks that, that are doing well, like, I do want to just play Inverter. Yeah, honestly. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly how that, like, Inverter versus, quote, Feather matchup mm-hmm. goes. Like, it, it seems like having Trials of Ambition is probably mostly pretty good against them. Yeah. But they do have a lot of ones as, as compared to the, the right. Auras deck, which, like, stacks up on its creatures. Like... When you cast your Trial of Ambition, a lot of times you're, like, just going to get a Soul Scar Mage. Right. And that's not ideal. Yeah. So so maybe that's not that great. Yeah. I, I don't I, know. I'd be curious to see, like, exactly how that matchup plays out. Figured we'd talk about Standard for just a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, I don't think we need to go super deep, but we have some kind we of should, big changes. Yeah, we should mention the the new kids on the block, yeah. as you've labeled it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and kind of conveniently... That was the f- the the two new kids on the block were the f- the finals of the Magic Fest online this weekend. Fitting, so indeed, so pretty easy to to just sort of take a peek at that. Uh, I, so Oliver two won the tournament with Jeskai Luca Fires yeah. with Yorion, uh, and then playing against his opponent Fishfan with Boros Cycling. Yeah. So this Luca deck kind of exploded after, I, I think it's like a Crokey's build originally. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. So I think Crokey's was definitely one of the first people to figure out the synergy mm-hmm. of token makers and Luca just being nuts when you have a couple of Asian or treasuries in yep. your deck. Or yeah. more than a couple, you're playing full four. <laughs> right. Which and, I, okay, I, now I see them. They were just sort of, somehow my, my eyes kept yeah. passing over them. I was like, where are the agents? I don't... Yeah. Oh, they gotta be in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it's just, you. there are a surprising amount of pretty good token makers mm-hmm. in this format. Um, like, you know, the big obvious ones, I guess, would be uh, the Birth of Miletus, mm-hmm. being able to make an 0-4, and then uh, having that stick around. Uh, but there's also uh, Shark Typhoon. You just, you know, make a 1-1 mm-hmm. draw card. That's pretty nice. Elspeth, the new 
um, the new Elspeth. I'm not Elspeth Sons Champion. Yeah, Elspeth Sons Champion mixed tokens, mm-hmm. uh, and then we're also playing the Omen of the of the Sun. Yeah, um, it's blinkable with Yorion. So yeah, yeah, and that's pretty nice. Um, and also four Castle Arden Vales, so can't forget about that. Um, oh yeah, right. I was like that. That was the more surprising card to me that I I feel like is very clearly great in this deck. Right. Your fires deck, so you love castles, mm-hmm. and then this is just a land that's going to be able to like on a fires turn. Like so, fires turn four, turn five, you can just activate your castle and play Luca on the same turn, yeah. and even play another spell. Yeah. So, like, that sequence is really incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, the the turn five, the ideal turn five there is, like, okay, turn four, I, I cast Fires, mm-hmm. Shatter the Sky, or whatever. Great. Turn Three five, activate Castle Ardenvale, yeah. play Luca, yeah. polymorph it, right. cast Yorion. Nice. Blink my Agent of Treachery, blink my Luca to reset it. Yeah. Um, if I had played any omens earlier in the game, blink them as well. But that's two steals on turn five. Yeah. And, and you still have the Agent of Treachery body and the Yorion body, and your Luca Planeswalker is reset to full loyalty. Like yeah. that's that's really powerful. Yeah, and one thing I definitely learned about Agent of Treachery is that the earlier the Agent of Treachery comes down, the more devastating it is. Because as soon as you get to the point where you're just like I'm just going to take your lands. And if you can take two of your opponent's lands on turn five, mm-hmm. imagine you're on the play. It, the game's just over. Yeah. It's... Um, yeah. So, no kidding. So, yeah, there's definitely some really powerful stuff here. Um, of course, this is a... You know, you have all your Teferi Time Revelers, too. It's, like, pretty good at also just playing a draw-go kind of game. Mm-hmm. When you get in these post-board, like, Mystical Dispute Mirrors, yeah. like, you have four Shark Typhoons and four Castle Ardenvales to capitalize on those, like, nobody's doing anything games. Yeah, and four Teferis. Yeah, and, like, and you're, you're equipped to play that game. Yeah. 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 So, a lot to like about this. Uh, I, you know, the thing that it is representing is the format being really big. Mm-hmm. Because if you're playing against aggressive decks, in your 80-card deck your ways of dealing with their stuff are, you know, four Birth of Melitus, three Omen of the Sun, and then your four Wraths. Yeah. And that's not really enough. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's really light for a 60-card blue-white control deck. Like, that's that's the your starting configuration in a 60-card blue-white control deck where you, like, pretty much always lose game one to a mono-red deck. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I th- I feel like the format is definitely very polarized in in that direction. So, yep, um, it makes sense that this deck is able to capitalize on that. Yeah, I mean, um, right when when your deck is entirely focused on agent of treachery, like we're certainly <laughs> saying, like there's big stuff to steal in this right. format. Yeah, yeah, and then you know the other archetype that is worth mentioning for standard is uh, this cycling deck. Right, and there I've seen a couple of different variants of the cycling deck. Some of them are uh, just Boros. Some of them are Jeskai mm-hmm. um, because there's the two mana enchantment that I'm blanking on that's pretty good with all these cycling cards. Um, improbable Alliance? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, being able to just make a bunch of creatures is honestly probably one of the better ways you want to utilize the fact that all your cards have cycling. So you have your creature that does that, um, the 3 1 human that makes humans. Yeah, a Valiant Rescuer. Um, and then the improbable alliance yeah although i i do believe that uh i, I saw some win percentages and the red white the straight red white deck did better over okay. the weekend than the sure. Jeskai deck yeah i having cleaner mana mm-hmm. even when a lot of what you're doing is paying one generic mana to cycle but having <laughs> yeah. cleaner mana is pretty good right. and i mean you just really want to be playing your foxes on turn one mm-hmm. and your payoff cards on turn two yeah and if you're ever stumbling on that then the deck is certainly a lot less a lot worse and i mean i played this deck before like over a week ago Mm. Uh, i played just the straight red white version and i thought like it's fine but the entire game is like cycling towards zenith flare (laughs) all the time yeah and i just had a lot of games where i just like hit a pocket of lands Mm. and like they killed me faster because they had nissa or whatever and it just wasn't like a game that i i got there quickly enough right Uh, you know i i'd get one zenith flare and i'd cast it for nine and if i had to kill something and not aim it at their face yeah then i gas right and and then i have to cycle until i can zenith flare for like 20 with my next one and that's just really hard to do yeah 
So I I wasn't impressed with this the first time that I played it, and my list was not different from this one. So maybe that's just maybe I just misevaluated yeah. what the deck can do. Yeah. Or maybe I was not mulliganing aggressively enough. That's I, that's what I was gonna mention. I went to five a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Like be, the difference between having a payoff on turn two mm-hmm. or turn one massively different than not yeah so i think that mulliganing to five or four to just guarantee your turn one fox or your turn two creature i mean the games with turn one fox certainly felt yeah very busted yeah yeah so i think that that mulligan philosophy is really really important with this deck um and that's definitely what i noticed out of the times that i played against this on arena mm-hmm. um like i never ended up playing with this but the times i played against this on arena all of the games were kind of what you described where they were just kind of like cycle a bunch and not doing anything and then like i would kill them like right before they were able to get a zenith flare off or something mm-hmm. like that yeah i don't know i don't really have the experience with it to give any definitive answers but it, you know i think that like you really just need to make sure that you have one of your cheap payoffs in your opener yeah yeah, and I mean, there's not very many of them. When no. you're playing red-white, yeah. it's really just fox and rescuer, because stinger doesn't mm-hmm. really count. Right. So it's... I don't know. I, I was not impressed when I played it, but clearly it's gotten a lot of traction now and was good enough at least to get to the finals of, of this yeah. weekly Magic Fest. So. How many lands is that deck running? 18. 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking that there's got to be a really, really low amount of lands to, to make this deck work. Definitely. Because so, it, it's um, just too easy to run into pockets. Yeah. And, and I mean, most games end with you having like four lands in your hand and you've made all your land drops just because... Just every card in your deck cycles. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, that's that's really all that I wanted to talk about with Standard, is I, yeah. I just wanted to list out those mm-hmm. those new decks. I mean, yeah, definitely good to go over those, because they are kind of like new elements of Standard. Mm-hmm. But I will say, for me, I haven't been dedicating a lot of time personally to Standard lately, so... Yeah, I've been certainly keeping an eye on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The old decks have not disappeared okay. by any means. Yeah. You look at this, this top eight, you know, there's still... Here's Rakdos Sacrifice with Obosh. Team of Reclamation. Team of Reclamation. Bant with yep. Yorion. Like, it's it's not... I mean, there's there's multiple of these Luka decks in the top eight of this tournament. So that certainly I, was transformative. Yeah. Right, and I will say, based on the, the kind of the word on Twitter, is that these Luka decks seem to be the best thing that you can be doing right now. And it's gotten to the point where people are complaining about mirrors and how it's all that they're facing. So The mirror um, does sound like atrocious magic (laughs) yeah yeah i don't really know like the the plans for what you need to be doing in the mirror Mm -hmm. or anything but it sounds like if people are starting to slam uh you know control magics back and forth then it's right i mean i think pretty crazy i think it's all about who draws more elspeth conquers death probably Uh, mm. in this type of mirror it's always about having more yeah doing that more blinking it more with your yorion and stealing your opponents right Keeping um, keeping them on stage two for as many turns in a row as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So woo, more, <laughs> more of that. I mean, I do kind of like those games because a lot of times my opponents don't quite grasp oh, how to handle the Elspeth yeah. Conquers Death timing and stuff. Absolutely, and and the Elspeth Conquers Death mirrors are very skill rewarding. Mm-hmm. So if you are invested in standard and are like you know trying to play in these channel fire bar tournaments and stuff like that it is worth putting a lot of time into making sure that you understand the mirrors yeah and all the play patterns associated with that yeah yeah definitely i i've won a lot of matches of magic just by baiting out elspeth conquers deaths and mm-hmm. like understanding how to get my opponent under the the turn two or under the stage two for as many turns as possible yeah like it, it's really important to get the timing of that card right yeah. um and and yeah i mean i think that it is one of the most important cards in the format still and so like that's one reason that we saw and i'm not sure if this bant deck is doing it yeah for example this bant deck and i mean this is this is closer to blue white control even than some of the other bant decks have been but this bant deck doesn't run nissa in it mm-hmm. and that's because nissa into their Elspeth Conquers Death turn isn't good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Also getting your Nissa stolen feels Yeah, that's pretty true. bad. That's that's a liability. <laughs> yeah. So. Um but you know, the the ubiquity of Elspeth Conquers Death has kind of kicked Nissa out of this format a little bit. Elspeth is... conquered Nissa. Yeah, pretty wild, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's fun. Yep. Um 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I definitely think that Elspeth Conquers Death has become the new boogeyman of the format. And maybe even Luca is gearing to uh, find its way into that role. So. Yeah, and I mean, I'm fine with Elspeth Conquers Death being the big, you know. Sure, it it's feels not, yeah. a lot less format smushing yeah. than Nyssa, you know, which kind of just puts a damper on a lot of the stuff you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a much more reactive card and can be interacted with and... You are you play this dance of you each trying to set yours up, or you play a deck that doesn't care about it that much, or you know that it's interactable in ways that like Nissa go to six loyalty, have a blocker go. If you let me untap, I win. Like it's very different from that. Yeah, yeah, nice. No, I completely agree. It seems like a, a much more uh, reasonable card to be on top. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Right. Where the game doesn't end immediately is the big deal. <laughs> right. And also, like, if your opponent, if you get into a state where it's just like, okay, I've got these Elspeth Conquers deaths in my hand, like, I'm safe, right? And then your opponent's like, Shark Typhoon for six. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, there is counterplay now. <laughs> yep. Well, good. Cool. Well, we will see you all next week. Um, really appreciate you tuning in. That's it for us this week. Yep. Um, thank you so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace. Peace.